Well, shalom. Oh, come on now. After being here a number of times, that's the best you can do. Let's try this again. Ready? Shalom. There you go. That's a little bit better anyway. It's, it's really a delight to be back here again. You know, it, for me, it's a real blessing when I have the chance to, to come back to a, a church I've ministered to before. And um, so thanks, thanks again for having us. And this morning, I'd like to share a message with you called The Gospel and the Feast of Israel. Now, you know, if you're like me, when you hear the word feast, the first thing that comes to mind for you is food, right? <clears throat> and food does play a very important part in the Feast of Israel, but that's not the primary focus this morning. But what I'd like to do right now is have you open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and I'll be uh, reading for us verse 39. And that's our starting point. John 5, verse 39. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, 539, sorry. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. Think about it for a minute. When you think about the scriptures, and when Jesus is mentioning this, what scriptures is he speaking of? There was only one scripture, if you will, and that's what we call the Old Testament today. There was no New Testament, right? So interest, just an interesting point for you to think about. Now, you know, Jesus is telling us <clears throat> that the scripture spoke of him and that Moses in particular wrote of him. Also, if you were to turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we're told, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets... He explained the things concerning himself in the scriptures. You know, I think that Jesus is pictured in the entire law and the prophets, and especially in the Feast of Israel, and that's what we'll be looking at today. Now, in the five books of Moses, which the Jewish people refer to as the Torah or the law, there's a lot mentioned about the God-ordained festivals that are supposed to be celebrated. And if we were to look in particular at Leviticus chapter 23... We notice that this chapter talks about a number of the festivals as well as their frequency, when they would be celebrated and all that. And I noticed in your bulletins, and that's really encouraging to me, you have a place to take notes. And so what I'd like to do is give you a brief outline for you to turn to later on in your own time uh, of Leviticus chapter 23 and the feasts that are mentioned. So I'll try not to go too fast here. But here's the outline of the festivals in the chapter. The first two, taken hand in hand together, are Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And those are in verses 4 through 14. Then we come to Shavuot, also known as the Feast of Weeks, or as we know it, Pentecost. And that's in verses 15 to 22. That's followed by Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, which is in verses 23 to 25. Then comes Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, in verses 26 to 32. And then the last festival mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23 is Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's in verses 33 through 44. 
Now, these festivals occur throughout the, the year. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Shavuot occur in the spring, while Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot occur in the fall. And it's significant that God emphasizes the fact that these festivals are supposed to be celebrated yearly. What could be the reasoning behind this command of God, but that the, the feasts are a portrait of who Jesus was, what he was to do before, when he first came, what he will do in the future? And so, very, very important for us to know about the feasts of Israel and their relevance to Jesus. Now, let me start off by talking a bit about Passover. You know, Passover was always very special to me as a boy, hanging out in New York City. And I bet you didn't know I'm originally from New York, huh? <laughs> what gave it away, right? <clears throat> anyway, I didn't say water and I didn't say coffee. But anyway, you get it. You get the point. So I, I grew up in New York, and every year at Passover, my parents and my brother and I used to travel to the Bronx to visit my grandparents, and my grandfather would lead us in the Passover Seder, and my grandmother and my mom would prepare for days on end a fabulous feast, and when I'm talking feast now, I'm talking about food. We'd have such Jewish delicacies as matzo ball soup, gefilte fish, chopped liver. Now hold back your excitement, I can't stand the drooling, okay? Um, But that was very special to me. And, you know, during Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there are two significant items that would be used according to the law. And those are an unblemished lamb, one year old, and unleavened bread. And these items focus our attention on two central themes of Passover, which are redemption and sanctification. Now, you know, God commanded the Israelites to sacrifice an unblemished lamb one year old and to apply its blood to the doorposts of their homes while they were in Egypt. And the reason for that was so that the lives of the firstborn sons would be spared when the tenth plague, the angel of death, came upon the land of Egypt and passed over the homes of those faithful Israelites that had applied the blood to the, of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes. And they were therefore redeemed. Now, in the New Testament, you might recall that Jesus is referred to as a Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world in Matthew, in John chapter 1, verse 29. Now, I can see that God asked for a Lamb without spot or blemish to illustrate the coming of the Messiah who would be without sin and who would offer himself as a one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice for us all. And just as the Israelites had to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes, so each one of us must apply the blood of the Messiah to the doorposts of our hearts. And in the same way, as we do that by faith, we are passed over by God's judgment because of our faith in the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us and of how he wants us to live for him. And the unleavened bread, or the matzah of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, represents our sanctification. Now, in many places throughout the Bible, you might be familiar with this, leaven is referred to as sin. For instance, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of the leaven 
excuse me, the leaven of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6. So we can see that these two festivals of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread go hand in hand with one another. First, we have a call for the redeemed to live sanctified lives. And then, uh, or redemption, sorry, we have redemption through the Passover lamb, then a call for the redeemed to live sanctified lives. So, then the next festival mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23 is Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or as I said before, Pentecost. Now, you may wonder, where does Pentecost get its name? Well, it gets its name from the Greek because the term Pentecost means 50 days. And the obvious question is, well, 50 days of what? 50 days after what? And actually, Pentecost occurs 50 days after the Passover Sabbath. And it's a time of ingathering of first fruits from the harvest. And in traditional Judaism, this festival has come to represent the time when the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, further signifying the birth of the nation of Israel as a people. But you know what? There's an interesting New Testament significance as well in that the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 took place during this very same festival. A new covenant was fulfilled and ratified, but this time it was to include not only faithful Israel, but those faithful Gentiles who trust in God's promises as well through the new covenant, which is mentioned by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. And I'd like you to turn there with me, if you would, right now, so we can look at it together. And by the way, if you have any Jewish friends, and I'm curious, how many of you know somebody who's Jewish? Great. Lots of you. You might want to jot this one down. This is a really great prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, to share with you those Jewish friends you know. And we read in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now what covenant is he talking about here? The covenant when they left Egypt, right? The Mosaic Covenant. All right. But, verse 33, but this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Very interesting, this festival, because Pentecost is one of three pilgrim festivals. The pilgrim festivals are Passover, Pentecost, and a festival we're going to be speaking about in a few minutes, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so think about this for a minute. So there were Jews from all over the Mediterranean region coming to Jerusalem to worship God at the Holy Temple, right? And here 
It's the Feast of Pentecost. And that symbolism, if you will, of the Israelites coming to Mount Sinai and Moses receiving the law at Sinai to establish that covenant with the Jewish people. The constitution, if you will. And now it's Pentecost. And once again, the people come from all over the world to Jerusalem, the Jewish people. And they're receiving this new covenant. And this time, it's ratified by the giving of the Holy Spirit, if you remember, in Acts chapter 2. And it's very significant that as a tradition, the Jewish people read the story of Ruth in synagogues every year during this time. There are a couple of reasons for that. First, the harvest spoken of in this book reminds me of the harvest of those 3,000 souls that day in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And secondly, I don't know if you realize this, but Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Gentile by birth who chose to call upon the God of Israel as her God. What a wonderful picture of how one day Gentiles will come to have a relationship with the God of Israel through the Messiah, Jesus. And then following Shavuot in the Jewish calendar is Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year. I know many of your Jewish friends uh, have just celebrated Rosh Hashanah. You probably were told it's a Jewish New Year. But actually, the feast is really the Feast of Trumpets. And biblically, the festival is uh, celebrated around this time of the year in uh, the first Uh, not in the first month, actually in the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. So how could it be the Jewish New Year, right? When you think about it. It's the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. And during this time, repentance, the season of repentance begins. And trumpets are blown during this very festival. But the trumpets that I'm talking about are not gold trumpets. They're not brass or silver trumpets. They're what we call shofarot or ram's horns. And I brought one up to show you this morning. And I haven't warmed up my chops, but I'll give it my best try, okay? So you can hear what, they, what it sounds like. Gets people's attention, right? <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Well, you know, the, according to the Bible, the book of Numbers, chapter 10... Trumpets are blown for a number of reasons during this festival and at other times. They're blown to summon the the congregation together when they met or the leaders to assemble themselves together. Another reason was so that when the Israelites went out to battle with their enemies, they blew the shofar to remind God as if he needed to be reminded that he was a battle general and that he was going to lead the battle and win the victory for the, the Jewish people. But the third reason that they were blown was they were blown over the sacrifices and the offerings during the appointed feasts. And I think the reason for that probably would be to gain people's attention. And it's kind of like Reveille, you know? Imagine if you were in the army, right, and you hear that at 6 o'clock in the morning or 5 o'clock in the morning. It's to get your attention. Something is going on here. The sacrifice was being offered up. Why? There was a price to pay for the sins that were committed and that God allowed a suitable substitute at that point. And in synagogues, 
The story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, known as the Akeda, the binding of Isaac, from Genesis chapter 22, is read every year in synagogues during Rosh Hashanah. We remember Abraham's faithfulness to God and God's intervention and provision by the appearance of the ram that was caught in the thicket to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. What a beautiful picture of what a future sacrifice would look like that God would make for all of us as a one-time sacrifice. God's only son, Jesus. This is such a prophetic uh, story. Think about it for a minute. God said to Abraham, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Think about that for a minute. Was that the only son that Abraham had? No. He had another son by the name of Ishmael, by his wife's maidservant, Hagar. Now, that was their attempt to help God. Remember, God had promised a miraculous son. Remember, Sarah had been barren all of her life. She was about 90. Abraham was pushing 100. They hadn't had a child, and God's saying, you're going to have a son. Oh, yeah? Well, you know, Sarah, she laughed in the back making her bread cakes. And of course, the three men had appeared and she was making these bread cakes for them. And of course, the laugh was on Sarah because the following year, what happened? But Isaac was born. But he was a miraculous son. How could he have been born when she had been barren all of her life and at that age, right? Not only that, but God tells Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, the one God recognized, a miraculous son. Remind you of anybody? And then to carry the wood for the altar on his shoulders. Remind you of anybody? Then to go to the mountain that God would point to, Mount Moriah. Which, by the way, if you go to Israel, the tour guides will tell you, and I think it's probably true, that Mount Moriah was actually where the temple once stood, the temple mount. Very interesting. So God tells Abraham to offer up Isaac. Isaac's on the altar, and then when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord appears and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop, basically. Now I know that you fear God, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, our God is a jealous God. He doesn't share his name with anyone. Yet this angel of the Lord, speaking in first person, as God, in a sense, So I wonder who that might have been. You know, there are guesses about that. I have my own ideas. And then, according to rabbinic tradition, even though Abraham didn't sacrifice Isaac, but it's possible he did, and even if he didn't, when he came off of the altar, it was almost as though he was raised from the dead. Mind you of anybody? This story is read every year in synagogues for Rosh Hashanah. And the ram caught in the thicket, just like, whoops, whoops. Thankfully, it's very hard. It doesn't break. Um, Just like the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was sacrificed for us. Then between Rosh Hashanah and the next festival, known as Yom Kippur, there are, according to the rabbis, 10 days of awe. And during this 10-day period, according to the rabbis, they've commanded the Jewish people to remake yourselves by repentance during New Year's Day and the Day of Atonement. They believe that God would therefore hold the people guiltless 
regarding them as a newly made creature. And then this period culminates in this next festival, Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. And the themes of Yom Kippur are redemption and reconciliation. Every year, the Jewish people celebrate this festival by fasting, by praying in synagogues in unison, confessing their sins as one body. But there's one element which is missing from the observance of Yom Kippur today. It's a blood sacrifice commanded by God in Leviticus chapter 16 and 17. And in fact, Leviticus 17 11 states it most clearly. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is by the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. And the reason why that's so important is because a sacrifice was meant to show the people that there was a price to pay for the, sac- for the sins that they had committed and that God would accept a suitable substitute. Again, this beautifully illustrates God's plan of salvation through his son. Those sacrifices pointed us in faith to the one who would offer up himself as a one-time all-sufficient sacrifice for us all. But not only that, but just as a high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to make the sacrifice for himself and for all the people of Israel, so Jesus, acting as our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, which we read about in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 7 and 9, came before the Father on our behalf. And what I'd like us to do right now is turn again in our scriptures to the epistle of Hebrews chapter 9, and I'll be reading from verse 23. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 and following. By the way, as you think, as you're turning there, who is this epistle written to? Jews, that's right, Hebrews, but who in particular? Jewish believers. So make believe for five minutes that you're a Jewish believer and you're reading this, okay? Verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Messiah, for Christ, did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. What festival are we talking about here? Yom Kippur. Otherwise, (coughs) excuse me, otherwise he would have needed to suffer once, often, since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. So you see, the fulfillment even of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And then finally, 
The last festival mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23 is called Sukkot. Now, we're actually celebrating Sukkot today. Okay, and I'll tell you a bit more about it. Just started Wednesday night, by the way. Now, there are a number of names which describe this festival, such as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this festival is characterized by rejoicing. Rejoicing over God's provision, not only for the harvest, but in God's forgiveness after Yom Kippur. My people... (coughs) Sorry, I have a frog in my throat. My people celebrate this festival by building booths made of palm branches, wood and leaves from trees, other items from nature... Somebody actually told me a little while ago that they have a neighbor who's Orthodox. Raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass you, but where are you? Maybe they're teaching Sunday school. Somebody in the church was telling me that they have a neighbor who's Orthodox, and they store a sukkah outside their house, interestingly enough. And, you know, the interior is decorated with fruits, gourds, vegetables. And I remember when I was growing up as a boy in New York attending synagogue that during Sukkot, the uh, folks after the services would go up to the roof of our synagogue building, and we had a very large sukkah that had been built by the uh, men. <clears throat> and we'd go up there after the service, <clears throat> sorry, and we'd have what we call a time of schmoozing and noshing. <laughs> now, does anybody know what schmoozing is? Yeah. Talking, it's like fellowship, you might say loosely. And does anybody know what noshing is? Everybody always knows what that is. It's always about eating, right? And so we used to do that every year. We used to have traditional fruits and things like that, fruit salad. Again, why? To remember God's provision in the harvest. And, you know, it's interesting to note that this festival has the greatest messianic significance. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, we have something called a lulav, which I brought up with me, made up of palm, willow, and myrtle branches. Uh, as you can see, the rabbis would say this represents the spine of a person. Okay, Tradition. And so this represents a, 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 a human being. This is an etrog. It's a large lemon, a citron. And according to tradition, again, it represents a heart. So the rabbis tell us at Sukkot to take the lulav and the etrog and to wave it up and down and from side to side, praising God to whom the four directions of the world belong. And that's a tradition. And um, secondly, besides doing that, I don't want to lose my shofar again. Stay. Anyway, you'd almost think it was alive. Um, And then let me ask you a question. Does a waving of palm branches before the Lord ring any bells with anybody? Okay. That fateful Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. The people greeted him. They waved palm branches. They threw palm branches in the road and shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why do you think they did that? They thought that Jesus was going to establish his physical kingdom right then and there. You see? But it wasn't to be. Because think about it. What month were we in? We were in the first month. Passover had to take place first. It wasn't the seventh month. It was the first month. So it's like they were celebrating Sukkot out of order, right? 
And secondly, in looking at Luke chapter 9, which speaks about Jesus' transfiguration before Peter, John, and James, we find a very interesting reaction when Peter sees what the men are doing. They're talking to one another. Impulsive Peter. What does he offer to do? He says, let's build booths, remember? You ever wonder why? Maybe he thought he'd made it. Maybe he thought he was in heaven and that the kingdom was about to begin and there was Moses and Elijah and Jesus. What else? Let's build Sukkot, right? Let's build booths. And maybe he was thinking about a prophecy, actually, which we're not going to look at right now, but you can write it down. In Zechariah 14, verse 16 is being fulfilled before his eyes. Now, this festival has a number of implications for us as well. During the 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites lived in these temporary dwellings. And we who know Jesus as our Savior and Lord need to remember that right now we're living in these temporary dwellings of flesh and blood. But that Jesus promised us that he was going to prepare a place for us where we would be with him forever. And that's in John chapter 14, verses 2 to 3. But we also need to remember the reason why the Israelites were made to wander into the wilderness for those 40 years. It was a result of the rebellion in unbelief in God and in his provision. And those of us who know Jesus as God's provision can rest in the fact that a place is reserved for us where we will be with him for eternity. But what about those who have not trusted in the Lord's provision? Well, for them, it will be as though they've seen the promised land from afar. Think back to Moses. Moshe Rabbeinu, the most faithful of any of the prophets, if you will. Um, And yet, Moses wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. You know, I don't know if you've ever wondered about that, but there was a time when God called upon Moses to provide water for those complaining Israelites uh, after they had left Egypt, right? And God told Moses to strike a rock, that water would come forth from that rock at Mirabar. And what happened? But Moses obeyed God, and water came forth from that rock. Enough, it's estimated, for 600,000 men plus families. And then later on, the people began to kvetch, that's another Yiddish term, complain again, right? And this time, Moses was really angry. He was frustrated. He went to God. What am I to do? God said, speak to the rock this time. That water would come forth. Now, I don't know about you, but I know, you know, I would have had a hard time believing that. Enough that I would have even believed that water would come forth from a rock hitting it. Well, Moses, you know, he saw it work once. And I guess, I don't know if that was a sin of presumption. He didn't listen to God. And he struck the rock. And God in his faithfulness provided the water despite Moses' disobedience. But because of that event, Moses could only see the promised land from afar. He wasn't allowed to enter in. But here's the good news. The good news is that we know that Moses is with the Lord. I think the transfiguration testifies about that. Amen. But if God didn't allow faithful Moses to enter into the promised land back then, then today neither will he allow Jew nor Gentile to enter into his kingdom unless we've trusted in his provision of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. So simple, yet so difficult. That's why we need to trust in his provision. Let's bow forward to prayer.
Father, we praise and we thank you that while we were still sinners, you sent Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, to die for us. We thank you, Lord, for your plan of salvation that you laid out for us throughout the scriptures so that even this morning, after looking at these various festivals, we're all without excuse, Lord, and we know it. Now continue to keep your heads closed and your eyes, uh, your heads bowed and your eyes closed for another minute. This morning there may be somebody here who's not yet trusted in God's provision. Um, and maybe this morning you want to receive Jesus into your life, into your heart. And you've never done that before. Well, nobody's looking but myself and I asked Pastor Steve to look on too. Is there anybody who's not yet trusted in Jesus and you want to today? All you need to do while everybody's eyes are closed is lift your hand so I could pray a simple prayer with you and for you. Anybody at all? Okay, I see your hand. You can lower it now. And anybody else, you've never trusted in Jesus until now and you know it's true and you want to receive him. Okay. For the one who raised his hand, just pray this prayer silently while I pray it out loud. Lord, thank you for your provision for me. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me for my sins. Thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus, the Messiah, to die for me, the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, that you raised him from the dead so that I could know that I'm not only forgiven, but that I also have victory over sin and death, Lord, through Jesus. So forgive me for my sins and give me new life, I pray. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Now continue to keep your eyes closed just another second. The one that raised his hand early and that prayed the prayer, please make sure you see Pastor Steve and myself. Uh, but there might be several of you here this morning that are already walking with the Lord, but maybe not walking with him the way you know you need to. And maybe today you want to rededicate your life to Jesus. I'd like to give you that opportunity as well. Again, not to embarrass anybody, but I'd like to pray for you. And if there's anybody like that, you'd like me to pray for you right now, just lift your hand so I could see it. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Okay. You can put your hands down. Father, I pray for those who've raised their hands, uh, that you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit and help them to live lives that would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We praise you and we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take uh, just a few more minutes now to give you an update on the work of Jews for Jesus. And when you came in, you should have received a white-colored card. Pastor showed it to you earlier. Uh, take it out of your bulletin right now. We're going to take part in an ancient Jews for Jesus tradition. Okay, it's called the tearing of the card. Now, take it out. You'll notice a perforation on the card. I want you to bend it back and forth along the perforation. And at the count of three, we're going to tear it together, okay? Are you ready? One, two, three. All right. Somebody once said if everybody tore at exactly the same time, Jesus would come back. I should have told you that before. Anyway, I'd like you to look at the larger card. It's a way of sending you our free newsletter. And I'm wondering how many of you are already getting the newsletter. Okay, good. A number of you. Great. Do me a favor, whether or not you're getting it, to fill out the card and check the appropriate boxes. We won't send you a duplicate if you're already getting it. But there's a few reasons I want you to get the newsletter. First reason is we want to help you to be more effective 
with all of those Jewish people that all of your hands were raised to earlier, that you know somebody who's Jewish. Um, but there's another reason I want you to get it. It's because I'm selfish. And I want you to be praying for our work. And you know, our ministry, in my ministry, there's a number of things I do as a full-time missionary. One thing I do a lot of is I hand out gospel tracts. I have one in my hand. It's brightly colored. It's funny. And I'm going to read the title while you're filling out your card. It says, Beware of Religious Fanatics Handing Out Pamphlets. <laughs> and, you know, we hand these out on downtown street corners, college campuses, anywhere we can be a visible sign to the Jewish people that, yes, you can be Jewish and believe in Jesus. Uh, just got back from our campaign we had in Manchester, England, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. We handed out over 30,000 gospel tracts and had several conversations with Jewish people. It was just amazing. Um, another thing I do a lot of is I visit with Jewish people on a one-to-one basis to witness to them. So if anybody raised their hand and you need my help, let me know at the very end later on in the back. Um, <clears throat> I'm ministering to somebody. I've met with him twice so far. A Holocaust survivor by the name of Sam. He's 93 years old. Really, really sharp. He's actually still working part-time in real estate. Uh, just an amazing story. He's not really open to the gospel. But um, I'd ask you to pray for him. That little card is a prayer reminder card with Sandy and, and my picture on it. Pray for Sam that he would come to faith. And then uh, a few other ways to be involved besides getting our newsletter this morning and learning about our ministry that way. There's a resource table in the back with some free literature on one side of the table. And then on the other side, there's some not-so-free material and I brought a few things up to highlight. We've got various books on the festivals of Israel, like Christ and the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, we got that. We also have different kinds of Jewish gospel music on CDs. Somebody likes Jewish gospel. And we've got some DVDs, including this one, Survivor Stories, Interviews with Seven Jewish Believing Holocaust Survivors, including my dad, who's interviewed on here. And then uh, there's other stuff, and I'll be back at the very end. Then the last way to be involved with us this morning is through your financial support. It's going to be a love offering taken for the work of Jews for Jesus in a minute. And if the Lord leads you to give, the money goes towards printing of tracts. It pays for my vehicle as I drive around to meet with people, to share the gospel with them. We're having a very large outreach in Israel next year. I have to be very careful. I can't give you very specific details. But I can tell you this much, it's going to be in Jerusalem for a month. And it's also going to be week for a week in other parts of Israel. And so the money that you give this morning even goes towards outreach in Israel. But there are two reasons not to give today. The first is we believe you should be tithing to this church or your home church first. And then the other reason for not giving is that if you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus... I'm glad you're here, but please, if you don't know the Lord, don't give, because God's got something better to give to you first, and that's the gift of eternal life in him. So having said all that, whether or not you give, fill out the large card, turn it in when the offering comes around. We'll even send you a booklet in the mail called A Roadmap to Christ in the Seven Feasts. Okay, so make sure you fill that out and turn it in. And I'm going to invite Pastor... Steve to come up right now and I'm going to grab my viola and I'll be playing some special music. <laughs> 